It's Al Cole from CBS Radio, and I want to tell you about a Renaissance woman who excels at everything she puts her innovative mind to. And you know, I'm going to start it out like this. What would you say if I told you that I was going to introduce you to a lady who is a very successful business entrepreneur and a world-class creative force as a realtor, interior designer, hosts charity golf tournaments for wildlife, and is the cutting-edge author of the stunning Magical Forces Within? Well, Al, I'd say make the introduction, brother. <laughs> I've just been dying to learn some of all of those things from somebody who sounds like a real magnetic lady. <laughs> well, you're in luck because not only can you learn about the fabulous life accomplishments of this woman, whose name happens to be Rhonda Grant, <laughs> but week in and week out, Rhonda will introduce you to some of the most exciting guests on the planet as she hosts her own awesome podcast, The Rhonda Grant Show, on Contact Talk Radio. Week to week, Rhonda skillfully weaves the magical forces within her with the extraordinary discoveries in the sometimes ordinary lives of her guests who blossom before your very eyes through the guidance and know-how of such a skilled and sensitive host as Rhonda Grant. You gotta check it out. Check out all the action at rondagrantauthor.com. That's rondagrantauthor.com to witness the extraordinary discoveries in otherwise ordinary lives. And I hear some of you asking right now, well, Al, how do you know all this? <laughs> I'll tell you. It's because I weave some of the same magic on my own nationally syndicated show called People of Distinction. It's all about humanity at its best. Every guest with extraordinary things to say about the magical forces within life itself. Get it? So check them out. The Rhonda Grant Show, Extraordinary Discoveries in Ordinary Lives, and People of Distinction, created by me, Al Cole from CBS Radio, now hosted by my amazing son, Benji Cole. You can check out People of Distinction on Apple Music or email me for exciting updates on my music and my books, too, especially Romance for Women on Amazon. Email me at al at alcoholic.com. You heard me right. That's A-L at A-L-C-O-L-E-H-O-L-I-C.com. And I really want to thank my CBS radio listeners for coming up with that handle, Alcoholic. <laughs> Seems like from day one, my listeners have been saying, Al, we love what you're doing there, brother. In fact, we're hooked on it. We're alcoholics. So here we go in classic form with a swing of a golf club as she hosts another charity golf tournament for wildlife and another incomparable Rhonda Grant show. So all together, everybody, here's Rhonda. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Rhonda Grant show right now. And I have a lot of great guests on this show and I have a great guest coming up. If you have been searching for a deeper meaning in your life, go to Amazon and pick up my book, Magical Forces Within. If you want to get in touch with me, please go to rondagrantauthor.com. You know, we're all ordinary people having extraordinary experiences, and we have a fantastic guest on the show today, Colleen Wagner, who is an author, activist, teacher, feminist, and an environmentalist. Best known as a playwright, Colleen Wagner's writing includes screenplays, documentary films, poetry, and short fiction. Her work has garnered many national and international awards, including the Governor General's Literary Award for her play, The Monument. Her plays have been translated into a dozen languages and continue to be produced around the world. She is a past recipient of a Social Sciences Humanities Research Council Research and Creation Grant that explored a female-centered, erotic myth based on actual stories of women and girls who had survived trauma in post-conflict zones and those of women in existing matrilinear societies. The result of this work resulted in a feature documentary film, Women Building Peace, that won the Silver Wave Film Festival Award for the Best Documentary in 2016, distributed by Moving Images Distribution, an interactive website, thelivingplay.com, and a play, The Living. She has taught writing at York University, Sheridan College, Ryerson University, 
and University of Toronto, as well as numerous writing workshops across Canada. A concerned environmentalist, she has been an active member of New Brunswick Voices for Sustainable Environments and Communities Advocating for the Rights of the Child to a Healthy Environment and a More Holistic and Sustainable Approach to Our Land Use. She has been an active member of the Voice of Women for Peace in Toronto, a vegetarian, meditator, and an avid walker. And we're going to find out about her extraordinary experiences. Hello, Colleen. How are you today? Hi, Rhonda. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to hear your voice again. <laughs> my, yes, my first question is, what age did you begin writing? You know, <laughs> or writing I, I, plays. <laughs> I wrote my first play when I was in grade four. Oh, <laughs> and produced it and performed it in my for my classmates, including dragging the sick room bed from the sick room at the <laughs> small school that I was at. So that was my first play. <laughs> nice. But but you know, I never thought of writing as a profession, largely because I think, you know, growing up um, uh, at that time in the 50s and 60s, you, you know, what I was taught in school in terms of literature was all written by old dead white guys. And so it seemed that oh, writing wasn't... <laughs> wasn't a profession for women. You know, what women were sort of geared towards was all things um, nurturing, nursing, librarians, teachers, and so on. Um, so I never thought of it as a profession, though I wrote all the time. I wrote stories and I wrote plays. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I think 1986 it might have been that I wrote what I would consider my uh, first play, Sand, um, which was then produced and thought then of myself as a writer. Because it was produced, is, is that was that the graduation that you felt, or did you um, feel it when you were writing it? No, by then they were. I, I would I'd started um, as an actress. And um, uh, it was when I was at Stratford um, working with many great actors and actresses and working yes. with, on Shakespearean plays, um, you know, that I became much more interested in what I was saying, not how I was saying it. And that's when I really wanted to become a writer. That's when I wanted to pursue it seriously and went back to university, went to the University of Toronto, did a double specialist in um, English and drama, English literature and drama, and started with uh, the Bible of all things and Greek and Roman mythology, um, uh, studied that with Northrop Fry, and moved my way through to present day. Um, so because when I wanted to write, I realized that I was a literary Neanderthal. <laughs> I really didn't know anything about the classics. I didn't know anything about the foundation of our narratives and narratives I've become very interested in because the stories we tell shape our thinking yes. and the stories that we have been telling, the narratives that we have been telling have been stories largely about the male heroic myth. And the, the male heroic myth typically goes something like this. The male hero is uh, an ordinary man who is called upon by either the king or his community to rid the community of some evil that has befallen it. And usually that is some demon or dragon or some dreadful thing that is always outside the community. And so he goes on a quest slays this demon dragon, usually mm -hmm. with the help of a woman, but a foreign woman, 
a woman from another land. And then he returns with the boon that rescues the community and brings about peace and harmony. And for this, the king then grants him the princess. So he dumps the other woman and <laughs> um, think Medea and, um, you know, lives happily ever after in a palace with riches and a beautiful princess. And what this has created in our literary framework is the narrative of the scapegoat, the other who is responsible for our problems. And we see that playing out in our world stage, on the political stage, the number mm -hmm. of wars in the world, the, the amount of conflict in the world, the blame game, the shame blame game that we still uh, perpetuate in our movies and in many of our writings. This is changing because there are more women writers out there and men too who are becoming sensitive to this old narrative. It was one of the reasons why I was interested in finding out what a female heroic myth would look like. So the male myth often had to do with revenge. Yes. So you uh, you kill my brother, I get my cousins and we'll kill your brother and round and round we go. And I wondered what a female heroic myth would look like. Prior to patriarchal societies, which happened around according to anthropologists and historians, around 5,000 years ago, so around 2,500 BCE, so around the time that the Old Testament was written, mm -hmm. which um, prior to that, for about 60,000 years in the Neolithic era, there were goddess-centered civilizations. So God was female. God was the great mother who gave birth to all things. And in those societies, women had um, value and power. Not um, so much a hierarchical power, because men were valued, um, but uh, but they had value. So um, very different kind of social organization. These disappeared, although a few still remain um, in the world. There's probably um, well over a dozen existing matriarchal societies in the world. And so I was interested in whether any of those old myths told to children in a goddess-centered civilization, in a matriarchy where women were valued, what stories, what narratives would be told to their sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. none, none of them existed. And so I thought, well, then I will look for one in post-conflict zones, the women and girls who would survive trauma in post-conflict zones, because these were the women who were largely rebuilding. And their story I found uh, remarkable. The, the documentary film Women Building Peace speaks mm -hmm. to that. And it's a very different narrative. So um, I, the narratives we tell, the stories we tell, shape our thinking and shape the kind of society that we build. So you can see sort of my, my feminist yes. <laughs> writing roots all sort of um, find their home in my work. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that started with your question, what was, when did yeah. you first write? <laughs> I took you on a long journey there. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I love hearing about all of this. Yeah. And our listeners will, will as well. Thank you. So what extraordinary experience have you found in your life? Um, well, you know, I've had many, and I think most people have. Yes. Um, you know, to, be, to begin at the beginning, I'd have to sort of go back again to, you know, when I was in grade four. Um, it, it, that might have been the first time running through the wild, tall grasses of my Alberta homeland. Um, and the prairies I found interesting, just to digress here for a moment, to create the landscape, because we all grow up in environments. We all grow up in a landscape. And I find the land also informs a lot of who we are as a person. Yes. And how we talk. So, uh, you know, um, they, I have met desert dwellers, these vast open landscapes, who are slow speakers, nomads, 
mm-hmm. uh, some that I've met. So I grew up in the prairies. So when I looked east, what I saw was like a Mark Rothko painting. So uh, if your listeners may not know Rock, Mark Rothko, but he painted flat bands of color that shimmered. He's one of my favorite painters, if ever mm-hmm. anyone wants to look him up. And uh, and when I looked west, what I saw was the steel blue castles of the Rocky Mountains, these sort of dark rooms as I felt towards them. And the east looking through the bands of yellow wheat and the great expanse of blue sky, I imagined myself as a child being able to walk between those two worlds into a different world. So I always had this sense of there being more to life than what could be initially perceived through the senses. Okay. And so running through these tall grasses, I suddenly had this overwhelming sense. It stopped me in my tracks. Okay. This sense of a greater consciousness. I probably might have thought of it as God at that time. Um, but I'm, I tend not to use that word because it has been overused and largely misused. Um, and tends to be associated with a personal conscious male being somewhere out there outside ourselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas what I am referring to is a consciousness that is within and without from which all things arise. And as a girl running through the fields, I had this sudden realization of that. And then the realization that comes with it, that I'm connected to everything. Every blade of grass is a living thing, every insect, every bird, every animal. And we are all part of that great consciousness um, the mm-hmm. sages might call it beingness, from mm-hmm. which we all arise. That would be my first experience of that, that I recall at any rate. And, you know, memory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> memory is a slippery slope and not always reliable. I found that out reading my old journals. I have kept a journal since 1974. <clears throat> oh. And yes, <laughs> including oh. a 13-month travel in Southeast Asia. and. Right. Uh, uh, I moved from, I had a farm in New Brunswick, which I just recently sold. And while I'm packing up and sorting and purging, I discovered my journals and I'm reading through them. I remembered certain events, but was mistaken as to where they happened. So memory, <laughs> memory is not all that reliable. So <laughs> what I'm telling you is only so far <laughs> what, what my memory <laughs> gives me. Uh, ask me in 20 years and uh, maybe it'll be a different story. Uh, so that was my first experience. But what it created for me, Rhonda, was this mm-hmm. um, abiding sense of, um, uh, beingness that was in all things. Oh, yes. You know, and yes, which you do. And it, it changed me even as a girl. Um, I, I remember playing a game with a young uh, friend and we're playing King of the Castle. That I don't know if you know that game, but it, mm-hmm. it's a typical sort of competitive game. And I was much more athletic than her. So we are leaping up these rocks and whoever gets to the very top is king of the castle. I was easily winning. But before I got to the top, I turned around and saw her crestfallen face. And yes. I realized in that moment as a young girl that for every winner, there is a loser. And it's painful to be a loser. Yes. And and if for what do we gain? And so I didn't go to the top. I think I may have taken her hand and said, oh, it doesn't really matter. And we may have gone to the top together. And I felt so much better for it than I would have leaping to the top, applauding myself, watching my friend crestfallen, sad and yeah. uh, the loser. So that experience in the grasses really had a profound effect on my life. 
And, and then life takes hold. And, uh, you know, I began teaching and which was a very demanding job, 24 seven, I'll call it. And, um, I think for a while I lost that sense. Mm-hmm. And I think it's easy for us to do that when we get busy. And, and if we're fearful of not having enough, which as a culture, we have experienced this really since the eighties with Reaganomics. I'll put it down to that. Mm-hmm. Um, with this change to let the free market decide. Let's boost the entrepreneur. Let the best man win. And we, what I experienced very much was the sudden leap of a handful of entrepreneurial people who had great ideas that um, made them very rich. And the vast majority of people who fell behind. So, for example, just to put it in a very specific context, I was working um, part-time. I was still in university. This was in the 80s. I'd gone back, so I was at U of T. And I was working part-time at a research, um, Bell Northern Research, um, and I was doing all kinds of things, some administrative work, but also a little bit of technical writing, but really just to help other people figure out how to use a telephone. I mean, because it became, the telephone started to become very complex. You had voice messaging, you had call forwarding, you had call waiting, you had conference calling. We never had these things before. These no, were all we didn't. being, these, yes, these were all being invented as well as then sending the first emails. So I doing a little bit of technical writing and I earned about $17 an hour. That would be in 1991. And then I went traveling for 13 months in Southeast Asia. And when I came back, so Reaganomics was in full swing. Manufacturing had already shifted offshore. I was already seeing some of the effects in, in Southeast Asia in my travels where, where companies could set up their plants, pay people, you, you know, a dollar an hour. Um, and there were no environmental regulations. So I was seeing pipes with purple water pouring into the rivers where people wash their clothes and bathe yeah. their children. Yes, horrifying. And when I came back, I couldn't find a job that paid $9 an hour. The cost of living skyrocketed and salaries tanked. Mm-hmm. And salaries have remained about the same since then. So we've been living in a time of great fear and a time where where the acquisition of things has been so promoted um, that I I think many of us and myself included there for a while lost sight of the bigger picture of the meaning of life. Who am I? You know, all those big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Yes. And and um, what really brought it back was a near-death experience, which you okay. and I have uh, shared. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you want me to talk about that or not, but... Um, uh, a- I think I think it's... I think you should because there are people... Um, who have had near-death experiences that might not be able to articulate theirs the way you are able to. And I think it really helps people uh, come to terms with that experience when they hear somebody else talk about theirs. Mm-hmm. And yours is so unique. Um, uh do you feel like talking about that? Yeah. N- yes. No. I was. I was only pondering unique. I wasn't sure um, uh, because I. I almost died of malaria, and malaria is a very common uh, uh, killer in Africa, which was where I got it in West Africa. This was when I was working on the uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council grant, where I created the documentary Women Building Peace and an interactive website and the play The Living. And while I was traveling to West Africa in Ghana, Ghana has a matrilineal society, the Asfantia Khan. So I was very interested in meeting them to find out the... Well, actually, I'm just going to digress. I was initially going to create just a female-centered heroic myth, and I'm in Rwanda post-genocide. 
and um, uh, I'm staying in a hotel and in Africa, often in these hotels, because uh, I'm staying in three star, not five star. I travel a little more like the locals and you sit at long tables. So it's very community, very social, socially oriented. You're not stuck at a table for two by yourself in a corner. And uh, there was um, a man from India who was uh, sitting across from me. And of course, we start talking. I never thought of Rwanda as a vacation destination, but he was there for a vacation. It, it is quite a beautiful country, I must say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told him what I was doing. And he said, well, then you must um, explore the matrilineal societies. And I said, well, sure, where are they? And he said, well, there's two of them in India. And so that began a very different search. And uh, because I had already started to film, I was traveling to Africa with a cinematographer. I felt for the sake of continuity for the film, I needed to return to uh, Africa to complete it. And so I went to Ghana, West Africa, uh, to meet with the Asante Khan, which I did. West Africa is known for some of the worst malaria, so the doctors have told me. And there I picked up cerebral malaria. Cerebral malaria usually kills you. Um, the, the malarias, the malarias in the world are mutating in the way that DDT mutated the flies. And this, many of the NGOs and scientists have said is because of the anti-malarials that we've been taking and that travelers often take. And it mutates the malarial mosquito, which is a particular mosquito. It's not just any mosquito who carries it. It's the malarial mosquito. And so the typical malaria manifests itself in four to seven days with fever and chills. But they've been mutating. So mine was a 30-day cycle, and I had no fever and chills. So I wasn't feeling well, but I didn't put it down to malaria whereas I might have if I'd had the typical symptoms. And it didn't really manifest until about three and a half weeks later when I'm in the Sahara Desert. I wanted to meet the Berbers, who are a nomadic group, who were once matrilineal but have since adopted Islam. But it's a combination. It's not. Uh, it's a combination. There's still strong women in the Berber uh society amongst the Berber people. And I thought I had just come down with the flu because to get to the Sahara, I had to cross over the Atlas Mountains and it was bitterly cold then. It was in October with snow and bitterly cold. But by the time I came back to Toronto, I was deathly ill and slipped into unconsciousness. Now, this is also where the story starts to get interesting. So in terms of how this greater consciousness can work, mm-hmm. And it's not an external thing. I I can't explain that. Uh, Sages probably can. But it is... um, So we're to begin with this because there are many converging points that were the result of my survival. Mm -hmm. The first was um, I returned to Toronto and I have... And, I, and I'm very ill and becoming delirious. My sister was going to take me to see my doctor who lived in Port Hope, so an hour and a half drive away. And she was going to take me because I told her I was feeling a bit fluish. And she said she would come on Monday for my Tuesday appointment. We'd spend the Monday together and have a lot of fun. And then she would drive me Tuesday. Sunday, she called to tell me that her husband had just died and she wouldn't be coming. Shoot. Yes. And I don't recall that phone call at all, but apparently I said to her, okay, I'm going to come to you. My sister started to intuit that something was wrong, that a lot of the things that I was saying were not adding up. She called her son who lived in Toronto, but whom she had been estranged for about five years, and he had never had a phone. He never hooked it up and never answered the phone. Day, And she called him to say, would you go over and check on Colleen? I'm worried about her. He responded to the call and came in a taxi. 
um, he was next to living on the street at that time. He came and uh, found me, uh, tried to break in. It's nice to know my apartment is like Fort Knox, and he couldn't yes. break in. And um, so called my cleaning woman who had a key. She was afraid to come out at night. And so he ran to her. This was a, an addict. He ran 12 blocks each way to get the key and returned before the police and the, the ambulance came and broke my door down. And uh, I wound up in hospital. Now, this is where I'm unconscious. So I have no recollection of this except these memories of this greater consciousness that I had as a child, but now different because I'm an adult. I experience it differently. Where I am one with it, there is no me. The ego has fallen away. This sort of timeless, spaceless energy, what I call the dark velvety zone. My friends would say to me, oh, did you see the light? Most people, you know, who have a near-death experience, experience light. And um, I didn't. Uh, and I, I was... I always felt like I was letting them down, you know. No, I didn't. I, I only had darkness, you know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hate to break the illusion. Yes. And, um, well, you were in a different place and people who saw the light would have been in. Yes, that's right. So I went to a Sangoma sometime afterwards, a number of years later, because I was very interested in that experience. Why was it only mm -hmm. darkness? And um, uh, he had said to me, um, he said, it's because uh, it was entirely up to you whether you wanted to go or stay. And so in this dark velvety zone, and I have recollections of kinds of meetings um, with beings. And, uh, um, and in this zone, this black velvety zone, Buddha speak of it as the, this, um, Bardock stage, this in-between zone. And um, that seems to be where I was hanging out. And it's a space I actually didn't want to leave. Okay. It felt so peaceful, so still, so um, perfect that I didn't want to leave it and become a being full of duality and pain and suffering and, you know, recovery and... <laughs> Yeah, all those things that go with living in the world in a manifested body. Mm -hmm. And how did you start coming out of that place? Um, they didn't know what to do. Um, initially, they weren't sure what I had. My nephew told them that I had just returned from Africa. So their first thought went to Ebola. So I was in ICU for a number of days. And then when they did blood uh, tests, found out that I had cerebral malaria, but it was, I was so far gone. 5% malaria in your body can kill you. 20% is fatal. I had 43%. Oh, shoot. So it's quite a miracle that I'm alive. Oh, so, yes. you know, many think, oh, well, it's not your time. And, you know, I, I couldn't argue with that. Um, I, I can't, can't speak to it, but I couldn't argue it. And so the only way they could save me, um, in the short period of time, they, I had less than 24 hours to live. They removed all my blood, did a total blood exchange. So we moved all my blood and put new blood in. So all you people who have donated blood out there in the world, thank you for saving my life. Unfortunately, having malaria, yes. I can no longer donate. Okay. It's one of those conditions. So that's what actually saved my life medically was uh, removing all my blood. M malaria is a virus that m multiplies in your liver. The liver then pushes it out, it, you know, moves through your heart, through all, and it circulates through the blood through your body each time it goes back into the liver. It multiplies. So it's why it usually kills you if you don't get treatment. It mm -hmm. is actually the number one killer in Africa. And then after that, it was just the slow recovery, walking again, 
you know, mm-hmm. building my strength up again. I was semi comatose for about 10 days. And uh, so walking, I looked like a boat. So I mean, they put about, my sister said, 17 bags of fluid into me. And my, I'd gone into renal failure. And my body was completely shutting down. So I looked like oh, a boat. I had mm-hmm. all this fluid in my body. And I wasn't getting wow. rid of any of it. Yes, it's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a, a, what the body can take is uh, astounding. It's a miracle. Yes. Yes. Whatever and what is. happened with you was a miracle too. Yes, it, um, it, you know, I had to, when I saw the Sangoma, we had quite a conversation about it because he was very interested in near death experiences. And, you know, I had to ask myself, okay, so what, what are my remaining years here to be about? What am I to do that's meaningful? And what is important? Who am I? I know. Right. From that experience and from the one as a girl. And then that sort of gap where I I lost sight of it. Lost sight of it in the sort of the, the hustle and bustle of day-to-day life mm-hmm. in a big city trying to survive as an artist. And... Uh, so it really um, made my writing very important to me and what I was writing about very important. So I wasn't interested, not that I ever was actually. Um, I was never interested in writing what would be popular bestsellers. Right. What I wrote was what I felt moved to write about. So the monument, for example, I felt was channeled. Now I wrote that before the, um, before the malaria, I wrote it after I returned from Southeast Asia. But 13 months of travel was a fascinating experience. It oh, took yes. a long time. Yes, you would, you know, we, to, to shed the, the layers that come from being busy in the world, the doing, doing, doing of the world. And traveling, all that started to wash away. I felt like I was getting rid of old heavy coats and getting down to my essence. Mm -hmm. And it was from that space that I wrote the monument. It came very quickly. Yes, It's a post-genocide play, but really looks at, um, you know, truth and forgiveness. What is the truth about war? We've, uh, we've, masculinized it and engrandized it and we've got monuments which we're seeing being torn down to all the heroes of of war the warriors and the generals but the story of the women and the civilians what's their story so it was looking at that not not a popular best-selling topic Mm -hmm. but But that's what came but when you were writing it did you think that you were writing um a play that you would be getting a high award for or did that I, uh, did this just happen like that that just happened no i had okay. i i had i wasn't writing i didn't even know that it would be produced right you don't I, yeah I, uh, in fact i had a commission from a theater company to write a play about the north I was looking at the explorers and I'm researching and I'm researching and I'm reading all about the Northern explorers and it's fascinating research, but I couldn't get a word out. I didn't know what that story would be. So there was nothing. And one day they called me to say, well, do you have anything? (laughs) And I said, um, uh, yes, but I had nothing, not a word. And I thought, oh boy, you better get going here, girl. (laughs) So I did one of my, I, I was teaching. I'd been always sort of supported myself doing all kinds of jobs. Teaching was one of them. And so I just did one of my exercises on myself. And the opening monologue of the monuments began. Uh, and the opening monologue is of a, of a young uh, war criminal. And, um, and I, you know, wrote and wrote and then looked at it and went, oh, boy, there's no way you can hand that in through in the garbage. Oh. And then the next day sat down, gave myself the same exercise, and his voice continues. Oh. 
Mm-hmm. I write and write and write. And I, I realize, oh, God, it's getting worse. There's no way I could give them this. It's horrific. And then the third day, you know, the, uh, I sit down, give myself the writing exercise. Mm-hmm. He starts talking and a second character emerges, the mother of a missing woman. And that's when I realized I had a play. And then mm-hmm. I just trusted their voices. I just let them speak. Yes. And I handed in the first 30 pages thinking, this is the end of my career. I'm done. Oh, you know, dear. I finished. And But they loved it. They loved it. So I finished it. We produced it. Um, it premiered um, uh, in Toronto in 1995. And uh, the critics crucified me. I was tarred and feathered. I thought, oh, oh this is the end of my career. I'm oh, done. You dear. know, I, they were yeah. vitriolic. How dare I write such a play? Who did I think I was? Men in particular were angry. They felt accused, you know, because mm-hmm. it has a... A uh, hard, tough look at war. Yeah. And, um, and then it won the Governor General's Award and it has been translated into a dozen languages. It's been published in China. It's still touring in China. It's been produced all over the world. It won the Governor General's Award and now it's considered a masterpiece. So exactly. It, so it tells me, I say this to any of you out there who are thinking of writing, trust your voice. Yes. Just listen to your inner voice and trust your voice. Don't write for anyone but yourself. Oh, that's such great advice. And I thank you for that as an author. I thank you for those words of wisdom because um, it's hard to trust yourself, especially when you start out. Yes. You know, and you're brand new and you're bringing your first manuscript to the public and you don't know what the response is going to be. And you must have been, you must have wanted to run and hide when you were, um, because of the response that you oh, received was. from yeah. the critics. You probably didn't want to pick up another, a, a, another pen and, and write again. Exactly. And I didn't. And in fact, when, the, when I would watch the play, when I would go to see a production of it, uh, the, the, the premiere, I would hide in the washroom at intermission. Because so nobody knows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, no, because some of the men in the audience would come up and jab their finger at me and say, "Oh, you're not that kind of woman, are you?" Whatever that meant, you know. Oh. And what they meant was feminist. You yes. know, a woman okay. who was telling. They thought, you know, the Greeks had written about the Trojan Wars. I mean, the war had been written. What on earth is a woman doing writing a play from a woman's perspective and and not glorifying it, not writing about heroes, not writing oh, about, yes. uh, you, you know, the the Odysseus and the Iliad and the, you know, the Achilles and the, you know, why, why am I not writing that narrative? Mm -hmm. Well, because there's more than one narrative in the world. And this, we, the, the danger of the singular story, the danger of the singular narrative is that it is exclusive. And we are in a time right now where we know with the diversity of voices, the diversity of people is what enriches us as a civilization. It doesn't diminish us. The single narrative has, and Mm -hmm. it's been challenged. But at that time, you know, I wasn't thinking that. I was just, it was my first big production, and I just was, um, uh, uh, I felt attacked. And oh, it was yes. devastating. I hadn't um, built up a sense of defense. Right. I went into it uh, defenseless, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> well, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't know. But uh, history has shown that uh, people who have such strong aversion to what is going on is usually you're doing something really great. Uh, uh, something certainly challenging to the accepted uh, norms and traditions, that's mm-hmm. for sure. And uh, But I would say to writers, again, actually, anyone doing anything, you know, that we should not be afraid of controversy, nor should we avoid it, particularly if we know it to be for the better good. Exactly. So you are listening to the Rhonda Grant Show with my guest today, Colleen Wagner, and uh, we're learning uh, so much from her. Um, 
What is your website, Colleen, that our listeners can go to and uh, take a look around? Um, you can uh, go to my website, www.colleenwagner.ca. And my writing and the um, website, the films, uh, all the information is there as well as a contact page. Wonderful. And and as we start to wrap up the show, I, I, I want to ask you if you feel that you've been called to your mission in life. Um, yes. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the briefest answer I've given you, isn't it, Rhonda? <laughs> it is. I want more because I'm all, you're always giving me more. So I want more. <laughs> yes, I, I think so. You know, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that in a way because there are people who, um, who I think we all have a calling. We all have a calling. And, but some of us don't hear it because we're too busy in our heads or too busy yes. trying to make a living and so on. Um, we all have a, I'll call it a purpose. Um, uh, you know, what, what gives us meaning for yes. ourselves in life? We all have that. And it doesn't matter what it is when you hear it, follow it. Joseph Campbell said, though, said something. He was a a historical mythologist and Mm -hmm. a very famous um, uh, teacher as well. And uh, one of his most memorable lines for me is, follow your bliss. Yes. Follow your bliss. And first you have to know what it is. That's Mm -hmm. what you're talking about, Rhonda, your sense of purpose, your calling, the sense of what gives you meaning, what fills you with that sense of um peace, not happiness, which can be very momentary and very sort of self-gratifying and sort of feeds the ego and so on. But this sense of inner peace, that this is what is right for you. This is why you have decided, agreed to um, manifest in this present time in the body that you are in and uh, follow your bliss and everything else will open up for you. I I truly believe that. That's been my experience. When I follow my bliss, when I am searching for something, it presents itself. If I when I'm open to it. Never when I'm closed to it. Mm-hmm. Well that's that's a wonderful teaching. Yes. yes is there yes. anything else that you'd like to share before we wrap up? <laughs> 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 that I oh, didn't. Rhonda, Rhonda. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a few minutes. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't. Um, boy, there's so many things. Um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, your listeners, and mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I think as we move through the world, we need to embrace the bigger picture, the planet and each other, and sort of let go of the fear that we have been living with for so long. We've just come out of a pandemic, which has terrified many people and altered the lives of many, some for uh, in a very positive way, some in a very um, negative way. But even in the negative way, like a near death, it is an opportunity for discovery. There, there's an opportunity in difficult moments, in painful, difficult moments, to ask yourself, why am I here? What is my purpose? Yes. And to rethink. And collectively, we need to rethink what we are doing on this planet. We, it's one planet and, um, it's in great trouble. And uh, there's the environmentalists in me speaking out. We are not separate from uh, from nature. We're not separate from planet. All that exists, we are part of. And when we contaminate it and destroy it, we are ultimately destroying ourselves. Now, I'm older, so and I've had a great kick at the can. But there are loved ones much younger than me. And I would hope that I could leave this place better than I found it. That would be my 
as an environmentalist, my work, mm-hmm. find mm-hmm. ways to do things holistically, naturally, get rid of the chemicals, buy organic. I know it's more expensive, but the more we buy it, the cheaper it'll become. The more we'll promote better ways of doing things. Stop eating so much meat. We don't need so much protein. We're told we need it by the meat marketing boards, which are there just to, you know, make money. And I'm not saying don't ever, but when we look at how we treat our animals for our consumption, it is appalling what desperate, tortured lives they lead, penned up, uh, given... um, growth hormones so that their udders are so big they can barely walk, Uh, genetically modified turkeys and chickens that uh, can't even stand up because of the weight, Um, pigs that are kept in in crates where they can't even turn around or lie down, brief, short lives, babies taken away from them. These are sentient beings, same as we are. And we need to uh, think if we love ourselves, truly love ourselves, not as an ego, not as um, Wagner, but as a being of consciousness with a purpose on this planet, then we have to see that every animal has that too. Mm-hmm. That's right. So treat everybody, you know, and, and John Lennon said it all. All we need is love. Eh? Oh, that sounds so 70s, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but there's a yeah, but there's a whole shift in human consciousness, and that is the premise of it. Yes. Is is to love your begin with loving yourself, because when you love yourself, then you can take that light and that love out and share it with people that maybe not know how to do that, and and help them with their lives. I mean, this is what we need to be doing. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well said, Grant Rhonda. Well said. Thank yeah. you. So thank you to my extraordinary guest, Colleen Wagner. I've certainly enjoyed uh, having you on the show. I would love to have you back again so that we can talk. You have such a rich background to share with people so that we could talk about some more things. I'd love that. Thank you. The theme song for the Rhonda Grant show, Sun on the Water, is composed and performed by my friend, John Park Wheeler. This is Rhonda Grant with the Rhonda Grant Show, author of Magical Forces Within, Extraordinary Discoveries in an Ordinary Life, inviting you to look for the magical forces within yourself today and every day.